Welcome to the Swaplex Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. Hi, I'm Allie. And I am Boomer. And we are three friends who meet on the internet to discuss movies. We take turns talking about stuff we watch separately, then we all come together to discuss something as a group. Uh, it's been a long time since this particular group has been together. It's been about a month. Uh, in between there, there have been road trips and shoo concerts and Easter parades and I'm assuming some schoolwork up in Portland and then also... Yep. <laughs> What else did I miss? Uh, and a horror film festival, which we've already um, filled this feed with as much content as we could. I went to a renaissance fair. Oh, another Ooh. thing. Did you eat a uh, giant turkey leg? I ate pork on a stick. I wanted a giant turkey leg, but when I was hungry, no one else was or wanted to wait in line. And then when I was no longer hungry and there were no turkey legs, everyone else was suddenly hungry. Did you have a cool costume? Did you corset nope. Did you have no. a sword? I mean, I definitely looked at many swords because I always like to look at swords. You know, my dad used to take me to a bunch of gun shows when I was a kid and I found them all very boring. But there was always someone there who like made or at least sold knives. And they always had like one oh. thing on that left yeah. at least that you wanted to look at, even if you knew you were never going to own it. And if you did own it, what would you do with it really? I mean, come on. I am in a room with a crazy amount of knives right now because i have a lot of knives but like you said like what am i doing with them i don't know having them i got like three different big old knives i got throwing knives in here there's a dagger somewhere y'all i'm a knife girl somehow it happened same it's better than being a sword guy but only barely i although i want to be a sword guy let's be real it sounds like we've been very busy people I'm still going to ask the standard question, though. Have y'all been watching movies lately? And what are they? I kind of have been playing catch-up from last year. So I finally got to see Nope. And I oh, great. really liked it a whole lot. It was a lot of fun. It's great, isn't it? Yeah, it is great. I love, you know, his movies. Like, and I've heard, like, a lot of people... Kind of thinking this one isn't as good, but I also think it's a lot smarter than a lot of people are giving it credit for. I wholeheartedly concur. And part of that is like, you know, he goes into the idea of like animal training and conditioning, but he doesn't exactly spell it out, especially as pertains to like the alien. So like if you're familiar with animal training and you're familiar with that process, you're like, oh my God. <laughs> It's great. It's great. Because I, this is where I'm going to sound crazy. I have a trained cat, sort of. He sits and he high fives. So a little bit familiar with the process. And, you know, the fact that Steven Yun's character accidentally, like, conditions an alien. Just like, sorry, guys, I know it's spoilery. But accidentally conditions an alien is so funny to me. <laughs> well, and there's also the fact that he, of all people, should know better. Yes! That that's part of the narrative, is yes. that, like, either he should know better than to think that he can domesticate a feral wild animal, or he thinks that something miraculous happened that is special about him, yes. which is the reason why Gordy didn't attack him when he was a child. Yeah. Because he sees the shoe and the shoe being like standing on its end lends the whole thing this like air of miraculity, you know? Yeah. That he believes, even though like he of all people should be too, should be the one most aware yeah. that that's not going to work. Also, I like that it 
busts that myth that like some people just have a way with animals like because yeah he definitely has this like oh i'm just living this charmed life when you know really this monkey was never like trained very complexly around him all he ever had to do was you know do the exploding fist bump i also love how low stakes everything is kind of they could just like move away but instead they want to get the oprah shot like that's the whole well, thing. It's not just about clicker training yeah. this uh, cryptid or alien yeah. or whatever. It's also about the entertainment industry. Yeah, exactly. And like the impulse to create uh-huh. or to turn, uh, you know, something dangerous into something yeah. fluffy and entertaining. Exactly. Yeah. Their whole thing isn't necessarily like save the earth and humanity. It's like. Well, we want money, and we have this opportunity here. Like, let's do it. You know, I feel like so many alien invasion movies are so much, like, higher stakes than that. So I really, I, I like that a lot. That's what I kind of liked about the movie is that it, it is about a lot, and obviously a lot of it is about having too much attention paid to one thing, <laughs> which I feel like Jordan Peele never got the time to like stretch out his legs as a director and like try out different things. Everything he makes has so many eyes on it. And all these people like picking apart every single thing he does and says in the script. Um, so that it all has to mean so much. And like, to me, after us kind of pushed that style of film writing to it's like most extreme, that sort of metaphor commands everything kind of writing. Uh, this one felt a little more laid back Oh, yeah. And almost like a hangout movie in a way. Very much, yeah. Even though, like, the scale of it is immense. Like, there's a lot of shots of the immense open sky in the West. And, you know, there are a couple scenes where the giant flying cowboy hat creature uh, <laughs> attacks a big group of people. Yeah. But uh, for a lot of it, it is like, yeah, just a few people out in a field kind of, like, trying to make something happen. Trying to make some movie magic. Yeah. I kind of liked that he took kind of a step back and didn't try to push the writing to such an absurd extreme as what it was in us, even though us is my favorite movies made. I was going to say us is so, so good, but yeah, I really enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun with it. Swamp Flakes approved. It's in our top 10 movies. Yeah. I really liked it. So the other movie I saw from last year, finally was men on the opposite end of the metaphor scale men. Where it's like, oops, all metaphor. Yeah, yeah, it is very like mother. metaphor. Like a mother, yeah. And even higher up in our top 10 list yeah. as well. Yeah, I like that too, a whole lot. I'd, I'm still like, I mean, maybe y'all have like clarifications on this. I still am trying to figure out like the whole green man, like pagan mythology thing, other than like the green man being like the spirit of spring and male virility, but I don't know if y'all had any insights on that one uh i saw it in theaters like a year ago like when it first came out so i'm like (laughs) but what i do recall as far as you know what that could possibly mean is that you know the green man is sort of like the first man that she sees naked who's very threatening to her yeah that's like the first that it she's being constantly pursued by that same creature it's just being Mm -hmm. re-embodied over and over again in some way so the green man the spirit of virility is just like hostile to her in general and comes to her on, with many faces, which are all the same face. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just saw it as yet another version of misogyny, which is like mm-hmm. every man is like some shade of the same hatred of women. Yeah. <laughs> like 
the priest and like the Garden of Eden stuff is like yet another metaphor on top of the Green Man thing, mm-hmm. and that's like a different version of like you know women cause all of men's problems and keep men out of uh, the Garden yep. of Eden type of misogyny, yep. and then the Green Man avatar is kind of this more primal pre-Christianity uh, misogyny, and then you know you have like the nice guy realtor you know who's like subletting the place out to her uh and he's like a much subtler but unnerving and um cringy version of misogyny and there's many shades in between yeah it it has similar it has similarities with barbarian which came out later in the year where like every man in that narrative is a different way that men treat women Mm -hmm. and even like the one who is the nicest that we like the most still thinks that he knows better to an extent that gets him killed and that's kind of what i loved about the metaphor of the conclusion like besides it just being this like grotesque catharsis where it's like you know men doing the most pathetic disgusting display and being like why don't you love me yeah uh on top of that, there's also this like very just blatant like this type of misogyny gives birth to this type of misogyny. It's just the patriarchy pathetically giving birth to itself over and over again. Yeah. yeah uh, so I kind of ended up making it into like a little bit of like a, a drinking game with my glass of wine where I just like every time I wanted to say men, I like took a sip. Like, it's such an aptly named movie. Like, there were so many times where it was just, like, a line happened. I was like, men. So, yeah, I I really like that. And uh, I feel like maybe, in a way, like, Alex Garland might finally kind of be settling into, like, a sort of, like, style place. You know, like, obviously, like, we all loved Annihilation. And um, he did Arrival as well, right? No, that's that was um Denis Villeneuve. Oh yeah, no, yeah he did Ex Machina. Ex Machina, yeah, we all liked Ex Machina and Annihilation, and I don't know if y'all saw Devs, but I liked Devs. Yeah, I liked Devs a lot. I didn't see it. That's actually like the main thing about Men that kind of throws me off is like Alex Garland does really good like chilly sci-fi, yeah, kind of like Denis Villeneuve, like yeah, that's kind of his thing, mm-hmm. and this felt like the you know, most clear argument yet in favor of like the 20 something film bros who treat a 24, like it's a director and not a movie studio where it's like, if you took his name off of this movie, I would not have guessed that Alex Garland directed it, but I would have guessed which studio greenlit it. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Mm. Cause like, you know, there were a few shots in it that I was like, Oh wow. Like, I feel like there's a lot of devs that looks like exactly like this. I don't know. I've enjoyed his work a lot and I like the subject matter and like how he approaches it. Yeah, I'm a fan. I've never seen anything he's done that I wasn't a fan of off the yeah. top of my head. And th- this is the one that would have tested it apparently. Yeah. Guessing by how uh many people had distaste for it. So yeah, that is uh what I've been into other than, you know, doing my homework and it's good to be back and talking to y'all. It's so exciting. And Woo. For more excitement. Over, what have you been watching? Well, um, it has been a hot minute since we all last spoke, but I really have only seen um, a few things because I've mostly been watching television. Um, anyone who follows me on Twitter, which I won't tell you what my handle is because, again, don't dox me. Uh, I uh, have really been watching uh, the hell out of some Star Trek Picard. And it sort of began as something that felt like a reunion and then started to feel more like coming home. And then eventually um, 
started to feel like having faith restored. It was a really uh, emotional journey for me that I feel kind of healed at the end of. So that gets a big recommend from me. If you're a Star Trek fan and the first two seasons of Picard weren't to your liking, and I don't think anyone could blame you for that because they weren't, uh, they were a real mixed bag, let's say. This was a very profound experience that I had. And it's very strange that uh, we talked about Nope because I, and then I did mention that I went to a Ren Fair because I did see some trained animals there, including a falcon, and it made me think about that. But also, uh, the friend of a friend who was in town and joined us on our Ren Fair expedition, her cousin is actually a writer on Picard. So I was able to give some direct feedback. Oh, almost, nice. Almost straight to the writing staff about how uh, much they had made my life brighter in the past couple of months. So I want to say that. Um, I saw Tar finally, which prompted me to write a five-star review of it. Um, it definitely would have been among my top movies of the year last year if I had seen it in time. But I won't uh, rehash those ideas here, nor will I go on and on about John Wick 4, which I also saw since the last time we were all together like this. Uh, but then I was out of town visiting family and came back. Uh, and a friend of mine was right in the middle of midterms right when I got back. But as soon as midterms were over, we had like an easygoing night, got a big pizza from down at the store or down at the uh, pizza place and watched Galaxy Quest. Oh, yeah. Um, which is a longtime favorite of mine. Do I ring the bell? Oh, <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. I would say every Star Trek fan in the world just counts it. We all love Galaxy Quest. Yeah. We all count it. Galaxy Quest is a Star Trek movie. And of course, I'm sure that you're aware, Brandon. <laughs> As you know, uh, the presence of Galaxy Quest and its release in 1999 fixes the Star Trek odd even rule. Are you familiar with this at all? I am familiar with you referencing this in something you wrote one time or maybe on this podcast when we did the voyage home or something. Well, we did two, four and six and I did not subject you to one, three or five. And there's a reason for that. It's because <laughs> yeah, it's the odd even traditionally rule. odd numbered Star Trek movies blow and even numbered Star Trek movies are great. Um, even though we did not uh, talk about them specifically, I have mentioned that I have no fondness for the motion picture. Uh, Star Trek three is fine. Uh, and then final frontier, which is number five is of course, like generally considered the worst. It's hard to even watch for how bad it is. It's, it's difficult. But then you have um, undiscovered country, which everybody loves generations, which nobody enjoys first contact, which is generally considered pretty well received insurrection which is not very popular and then nemesis which is also not very popular but galaxy quest slots right in there between them <laughs> um, to fix that rule so and then uh, that of course continues on with like the what they call the kelvin verse which are the jj abrams movies where uh it picks back up where that first one which would be as the next odd one or the next even one is good and so on and so forth but um we all love galaxy quest here right yeah this movie never gets old. Like, I've seen this movie at least a dozen times, and it's funnier to me every time. I remember the last time I watched it, all I did pay attention to was, like, how many funny character actors were in it that I just didn't know at the time. Yeah. Like, there were a lot of comedians that got famous later that are, like, hanging around that movie. Yeah. Um, Rain Wilson is in it as one of the aliens. Uh, of course, Tony Shalhoub is there. Alan Rickman, Sigourney Weaver. 
Tim Allen in his finest role? Yeah. I remember Missy Pyle being funny. Missy Pyle is very funny in it. And she is also someone who does not get the respect that she deserves. I agree. Even Sam Rockwell is very funny in this. You know, his whole deal where he played a uh, red shirt, essentially, like a disposable uh, security officer on the original show. And then now that he's caught up in this larger world, he thinks that he's the one who's doomed because of it. And of course, like the way that the other actors even sort of go along with it or buy into it at points, like, you know, Sigourney Weaver's character is like, we've got to get out of here before something kills Guy. That's very funny. Um, Sam Rockwell, like freaking out about opening the shuttle door without checking to see if there's even air on the other side. There are so many jokes in this that are so funny. And I laugh out loud every time. I can I could watch this every couple of years until the day that I die. It's very fun. Shout out to the casting director. Yes. <laughs> I also finally saw I've been wanting to watch this for a while and I had it on hold at the library, but someone would just kept renewing it forever. I finally got to see Gosford Park, which is of course a Robert Altman movie uh set in 1932. It serves as kind of a precursor for Downton Abbey, which I know both of y'all enjoy. Actually, I don't think I've ever watched any Downton Abbey. Oh, oh I've it's watched Brittany. all of it. Yeah, I was going to say it's, it's <laughs> yeah. Brittany. It, I'm thinking of Brittany. Well, this is, have you seen this, Brandon? Yeah, uh, I did it uh, an episode of the podcast uh, with Brittany and James where I made them watch this because it was written by Bob Alaban, co-written with Julian Fellows at Downton Abbey, uh, and also made them watch Bob Balaban's two directorial efforts, which are so different. <laughs> We're like, this is the sophisticated sort of highbrow comedy you would expect from Bob Balaban, like looking at him and watching him work. And then he directed these two really over the top horror comedies in the nineties that are like basically sort of like John Waters light. Uh, <laughs> and maybe not what you would expect from him. And I love that man so much. Yeah, I uh, I read the Wikipedia page for Gosford Park after watching it, and I did see that apparently the DVD release was widely panned for having like a not very good video transfer, and that is exactly what I noted as well. Like it was kind of um, very fuzzy at points, and it felt like it was shot very cheaply. I was shocked by how like cheap it kind of felt at points, like. You know, like an MTV middle of the night, like soap opera, like undressed or spider games or something like really made for television cinematography, which I know can't possibly have been what was the real original cut. It's got to be that transfer because that really answered some questions about why it looked so bad. And the sound mix on the DVD is also not very great. So those did contribute to a feeling of um, not really enjoying it very much because it was very hard to tell kind of what was going on at certain points and also like to hear dialogue over everybody clomping around. Like sort of as a point of comparison, you think about Portrait of a Lady on Fire and there's an awful lot of audible footsteps in that, but they feel very intentional and they're part of the fact that there's not really any other musical soundtrack going on it's just those noises and it just it was hard to hear i did enjoy it still a lot for like what i what it was you know you're raising an interesting thought for me real quick is like normally in a like situation like that where i can't actually make out dialogue i would turn on the subtitles you know the captions but like 
What are captions on a Robert Altman movie where there are like five different overlapping conversations that you're only supposed to hear snippets of? Like, how do, does it, does the text just fill the screen? Like, I can't even <laughs> picture it. Yes, I, I had a very similar issue the first time I saw um, the thief, the cook, his wife, her lover, or the you know you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, where that the sound mix on that again very similar. That also has Richard Gambon and Helen Mirren. You know, I guess maybe they're kind of from uh, maybe that's sort of what's being imitated in Gosford Park with the overlap. But like I was initially, I initially tried to watch it whenever I took it with me to an Airbnb where the DVD player there did not really function that well. And I could not hear the dialogue very well. And I tried to find subtitles and how would you get subtitles in that movie either? It's the same way. It's like, uh, you know, you have to just accept that you're not going to catch everything, but I felt like I was catching much less than I really wanted to or was trying to now i still really enjoy the whole like thrust of it that you know this murder happens at this english manor house and the servants figure out who it is almost immediately just because uh the people who live in the house talk about everything in front of them because they don't think of them as people so like you know these aristocrats are basically prevent the crime from being solved through their own just like you know pretension wonderful i loved that but i was also like i can't i don't know what's happening i don't know who's talking there were certain things that i heard like a little bit of a part of a piece of dialogue and then later something would happen and i was like oh i guess i guess they must have been saying this whenever i heard a clip about you know traveling without a maid servant or whatever just in general I, this is a movie that I would recommend, but I'm going to give a forewarning. If the only copy you can get is like the DVD copy from your library, you, this might be something you would want to rent on a streaming service if you can't find any other way to get a hold of it. I will say that is kind of Altman's style in a way, though, is like you're not actually supposed to catch everything. Now, I'm not, I'm not talking about stuff like Three Women or I know we talked about Images, images last time. Yeah. Those are kind of outliers. Like, his main style, like his signature thing that people know him for is overlapping dialogue. And these like large cast dramas where like multiple conversations are happening at once. And it's literally impossible to listen to them all. Or Popeye. That's another outlier. Yeah. Well, that just had like an infamously troubled shoot uh, where like their giant set they built kept falling in the ocean because of hurricanes. Yeah. (laughs) That that movie had other issues. Fair enough. And then, we talked about this a little bit off mic before you joined us, Allie. I watched the Power Rangers once and always 30th anniversary special. Oh. Had a bit of a morbid sense of curiosity. Mm-hmm. Now, I was born to the day to be the perfect age to be obsessed with Power Rangers. I remember very clearly the first time I saw it. I remember that the Power Rangers were at Cortana Mall in Baton Rouge and that I did not get to meet them as a child because we were at the March for Jesus along the levee, um, which was an anti-abortion march in which my parents participated, uh, the whole church, in fact, which, you know, uh, kind of explains some things. Um, I did see a Power Rangers live show when I was a kid where they did like, you know, ride around on ATVs and do loops and like do stuff like that. And then, you know, ride the ATVs off stage. And then, Oh, here comes Amy Jo Johnson and David Yost with their helmets off. Cause we just, we totally just saw them doing those stunts. Right. 
And then in the second season, they introduced Lord Zed. And again, you know, let's talk about Christianity uh, because his name was Lord and there is but one Lord and his name is not Zed. That was one of the reasons <laughs> that the show became forbidden in my household, even though like, yeah, yeah. that is like a totally that's a like a historical term as well. But, you know, yeah. and Goldar is basically a golden idol. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that you all are aware of this because I've written about it. and We've talked about it. But there was a whole cottage industry of just like examining media and then coming to the worst possible conclusion that you could about it and then putting that in a book to be sold at like the tent revival and in churches across the country we still have some you know that has evolved but at the time it was a very specific like oh um jedi monks are buddhists and buddhism is eastern mysticism you know like that kind of shit so you know, uh, I was forbidden to watch the show, and then when I was 10 or so, Power Rangers in Space came out, and I was allowed to watch that because it was space-based, and I was obsessed with Star Trek, Ring the Bell. So, <laughs> you know, I, I was allowed to get back into it, and then that sort of didn't last long, but I was the right age for this. I know way more about the Power Rangers lore than any person my age should just from like going through long periods of depression where I would just let YouTube autoplay whatever the hell it wanted. And there was a YouTuber named Linkara who did like a whole history of the Power Rangers thing. So there were like memes that were referenced in this like reunion special that I understood, even though like clearly I've, I've never seen like the whole variety of this. I will say... Um, just in the sense of fairness, I do love Karanja, the Super Sentai series, um, where they're in cars. That one's very funny. I enjoy that one a lot, more than any of the Power Rangers. But one of the weird things about this special is that the actress who played Trini, the original Yellow Power Ranger, died like 20 years ago. She was in a car accident. Yeah. And this movie starts with like most of the cast fully morphed right in their Power Ranger suits. And Trini, through the use of, like, archive audio, is killed in the confrontation at the beginning Whoa. of the movie, even though the actress died 20 years ago. Weird. Oh, that's a choice. It certainly is. Um, and it sets up this, like, plot uh, narrative. It sets up this narrative that her daughter, who is a teenager, is now sort of, like, under the guardianship of... Zach, who we all know as the original Black Power Ranger, mm -hmm. and he's like her guardian. And he, b before those, he was a congressman, which, you know, I don't know how that works. I don't know how you juggle those two jobs of being a Power Ranger and a United yeah. States uh, congressman. But, um, you know, she wants to take on her mother's legacy as the new Yellow Ranger. Um, the special focuses also a lot on Billy, the Blue Ranger, who was and is played by David Yost. And there's a whole lot of stuff that went on behind the scenes of this program back in the day. Uh, they were not paying these teenagers or these actors very well. Um, they were not paying for hazard insurance, even though they were sending them around to occasionally actually themselves participate in these sort of like stunt shows and stunt spectaculars. They were really screwed out of a lot of money that they were owed for their likenesses being used in the toys, which were like the biggest money makers. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that people that became aware of in recent years is because we're talking about 
95, 96, David Yost will basically left the show because of homophobic bullying backstage. And he has not done a lot of acting since then. Most of them haven't. Amy Jo Johnson has had a career doing like Canadian sort of 911 type shows. I used to see an advertisement for one of them, and I don't know what its name was. Uh, it was advertised during Leverage, when Leverage was on Ion, like the antenna station, some five, ten years ago. And of course, not only is uh, Thuy Tron, who played Trini, dead, but Jason Frank also passed away last year. So you see only Billy and Zach unmorphed at the beginning of this movie. And then the other characters were, you see these opening credits, right? And you're like, okay, I know that Johnny Young Bosch is Adam who played, you know, the Black Ranger after Zach. Uh, so you're kind of expecting that, oh, this Red Ranger is one of the later Red Rangers or whatever, but they establish, they establish in dialogue that it's like actually Tommy, Kimberly, and Jason, um, which God, I'm, I hope this is nobody's first time listening to this podcast. I'm very sorry. But <laughs> the, and so then they bring back, you know, other characters who played those same, like, uh, supposed, like, you know, under the suit actors in, from later seasons, like Rocky and, and Kat. And everybody looks so old and sad in a way that made me feel old and sad. Oh, no. Walter Jones is the one who's giving the best performance. He looks the best. Um, and he is the one who is most alive on screen. It's kind of hard to describe this phenomenon, but once, if, if you recall it, you've definitely experienced watching something where it was present. But you know how sometimes you're watching something and the dialogue is so sleepy and the actors are sleepwalking through everything so bad that there's like a, it's just a third of a second too long between every single line of dialogue mm -hmm, mm -hmm, where yeah. like there's just too much space. It's not even a full second, but every time it happens, you're just, it's just very noticeable. You know what show I feel like that about? I feel like that about season two of Next Generation. Oh, that's, yeah, that's definitely <laughs> My bell arm there. is getting tired. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So whenever Walter Jones is on screen, and especially when he is interacting with the actress who um, is playing Trini's teenage daughter, she also, she's, she's very much like a child actor's, like a children's television child actor, where she's sort of like over emoting sometimes and like making it really clear so that the children at home can understand what she's feeling emotionally but she's not a bad actress and she and walter jones actually have like a lot of chemistry as like a child and a guardian which you know again this is like a terrible thing that i watched i like i'm not i'm not trying to suggest that anyone watch it i'm not saying that it was good or worthwhile but there are elements in it that are praiseworthy and it would be those two and their performances both like separate from one another and when they're together and also, anytime that there is any sort of like fight choreography where they're not morphed, and I, I, I'm sorry to keep using the word morphed. I promise we'll move on from this shortly. Well, it's Power Rangers, they morph mightily. They do, yes. Um, the old Sentai footage, when they would use that uh, in the fight sequences, the spandex sort of like goes up the neck. And this is something that I've noticed in like any images that they have of what is supposed to be the original costumes from you know Mighty Morphin back in the day, 
where they have a real pronounced turtleneck quality to them now that's very thick. Like it feels <laughs> like there's a very thick foam. And it's weird because it makes them all, it makes their proportions look very strange to me. Like it's coming out like an extra inch of thickness on both sides. It doesn't feel like they have slender necks and it makes their whole body look weirdly out of proportion. And that's not even getting into and look, I know that this isn't fair. And I don't know that a child would notice this. And this is something that, again, is made for children. But whenever they are fully morphed, uh, they are clearly very slender, athletic young people. And then whenever one of these like 40-year-old actors takes the helmet off and you see them in a body shot, they're all ponching out like real bad. And it's just like, I don't know why you chose to make it this way. Other than, I guess they did make it for children. And therefore, children won't notice that sort of thing and it's not my place to judge that was the magic trick of the original show too right like they would basically use like 60 percent, you know the original japanese show and then they would add these like american interstitials maybe when they're fighting like the mud people in between the rubber monsters but like the putties who the do putties. return <laughs> great 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 <laughs> but th that was like that's kind of a suspension of disbelief back then as well as like that those two different film stocks even like matched up perfectly. Right. And like, you know, as adults, it's very clear now. And I don't know if children who are more media savvy now than like we were when we were their age, because I do think that they are probably more media savvy in some ways than we are. Um, maybe they would notice. I didn't notice as a child, as an adult, it doesn't bother me, but this sort of like very thick, it's the thickness. There's something wrong with it. It just makes their whole bodies look out of proportion, whether they're in the suit as like some martial arts twink body double, or if they are actually David Yost just with his helmet off. You know what I mean? It just looks wrong. Maybe it was an insurance company um, policy that add, had to add an extra padding and neck support <laughs> for these people so they get injured on set. Well, I do want to throw in a quick shout out for like two of the better movies of the year so far have been Power Rangers Super Sensei adjacent. Uh, both Quentin DePew's new film, Smoking Causes Coughing. It's kind of I a parody to of see that it show. So bad. Have you seen it? Yeah, I watched it at Overlook. We we talked about it last episode. Oh right. I seem to remember you saying that you were going to see it, but it's been so long since we were all together. It's also streaming VOD already, so it's it's out there. It's very okay. good. It's not entirely a Power Rangers thing. Like that's what the advertising shows you, and it turns into another weirder well, thing. It is. It is that guy. Yeah, yeah. Depew's kind of a prankster. Is it kind yeah. of um, sort of danger fivey more than anything uh, else? I would say, "Are you afraid of the dark?" Is more of a uh, <laughs> corollary oh, okay. weird enough. Um, and then also the guy who did. Neon Genesis has those new Shin Godzilla, Shin Kamen Rider films. And his, his movie Shin Ultraman was like one of my favorite trips to the theater all year. And it's very much a throwback to the 60s version of this type of television. So I would just like to float those out there as like good, high quality examples of what you were just talking about. It's funny because Smoking Causes Coughing is French and there's another uh, French Super Sentai satire. Say that. Uh, seven times in succession <laughs> um called french force five or like force fatale five um and that's very funny as well so leave it to the french to be the best at um parodying super sentai i guess 
Well, I could talk about a lot of movies I've seen over the past month, but for the sake of brevity, I'll just talk about what I did today, which was I took the same bus line to two different theaters. I did see the new Ari Aster film, Bo is Afraid. Oh, I'll be going on Wednesday. Yeah. I assume that, you know, between, I I think you're going to watch and review it for us, and I assume the other half of the podcast crew will also be watching it soon. So maybe I should keep it brief. I I mean, I could, it's a movie of many incidents, and I could say a hundred things that happened in it, and it would still have plenty of surprises left. It's one of those Charlie Kaufman type, like, odysseys into the human mind and into one's own narcissistic self-obsessions and self-mutilations, which I've been kind of striking out on those lately. Like, I really did not like Under the Silver Lake. I really did not like I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Uh, And there's probably several other recent examples of that style of filmmaking that didn't do it for me. So I was worried that I would hate this. And uh, I liked it. It was good. That boats well. It's got a lot of, like, metaphor as the driving mechanism (laughs) type of writing, like we were talking about earlier. Uh, with guilt and anxiety and big-time mommy issues. But what I really liked about this one in particular is on a wider scope, if you like move outside the main character's head where most of the action is, it's also just this really ugly portrait of America right now. Like, the worst, most misanthropic view you could possibly have of, like, urban life and then suburban life and then, like off the gritters in the woods and then, you know, ultra wealthies like little cloisters where they're doing absurdly cruel things that no one's even looking at. It's just got this like all around grotesque caricature of like modern life in this nation. And even in the moments where I was kind of losing interest in where the story went, it would always pull me back uh, with an- another event, you know, cause it is like kind of a random assortment of ideas, but just in a big picture sense, I really just felt like that was the glue. It was like just a uh, misanthropic view of this nation in a way that like feels like a, a, a mental health purge. But like getting like all of your most hateful, paranoid ideas about other people in America out in the open in the most like grotesque way possible so it can move on. And I won't say it heals, but uh, it at least gets everything on the table. I've been really fascinated by like the fallout from it in theaters where, you know, I read about like the person standing up after a screening in L.A. and being like, I would better not hear any fucking clapping. It's very funny to me. Um, <laughs> like that would be sort of a situation where in theater it might make my heart stop for a second. But very funny that it's so divisive. I love I love things that um tear people apart that's part of what unifies us as a swamp flicks you know i think we all kind of have this like love for things or like get extreme reactions from people yeah yeah but not like in an edgelord way just just for anybody again who if this is your first time listening to us that's like a movie like mother is really divisive like we're more likely to go see it just out of interest yeah like it yeah and find find something positive in it or, or like me, where I gave it like a one star review and then put it on my favorite <laughs> top 10 of the year list. Mind boggling still. <laughs> you I know, absolutely love that, though. I'm a confusing man. I make no apologies for it. To know me is to um, touch the veil of madness. To dip my toe into the discourse a little bit, I do think some of that comes from like fandom speak, where like it's not about the movie that the person just watched. Like they're kind of thinking in this like galaxy brain way about 
a 24 as this like harbinger of good taste. And like, you see people also tweeting that like a 24 has something to answer for, for giving this man $35 million to make this like self-obsessed morality play and self-flagellation about his mommy issues. That's not like a crowd pleasing work of art that like feels very MCU brain to me and Mm, kind of feels like what I was saying about Jordan Peele with Nope earlier. And maybe even a little bit with, uh, Alex Garland, where it's like, there's so much immense pressure on these young filmmakers who have not yet been pulled up into the superhero realm. Rest in peace, Taika Waititi. That like everything they do has to be this like grand masterpiece with like all these like pieces firmly in place. Like they're all Kubrick or something. And it's not fair to them as artists. Like Kubrick got to make a bunch of studio pictures before he made 2001 A Space Odyssey. Like, I love Kubrick movies, but we don't need another Kubrick. <laughs> no, that sounds boring. I don't I don't want that kind of precision. I, I don't even like Denis Villeneuve because I feel like he's putting that much pressure on himself to have that like cold, calculated, academic, everything in its place kind of feel to his stuff. And Ari Aster's a little messier and a little more sprawling and patient. But I also don't think that by his third feature, he's supposed to be this like master of the art form. And I think that's a really unfair pressure to put on a young filmmaker who's still starting out. Um, I also was thinking about that because earlier this morning, I went to see for the first time um, the Britannia Uptown played rope by Alfred Hitchcock. Oh Oh, yeah. yeah. That's a classic. I loved it. You know? Okay. You paused for such a long time that I was like, are you about to tell us that you hated it? No, I personal favorite Hitchcock is probably psycho. And I'd, instantly put this after one watch like maybe right below that as my number two like i really wow. really love this movie it was very good i'd say yeah, top five for me i have a real fondness for notorious i have a hard time uh quantifying my hitchcock but like many other people i love the birds <laughs> oh yeah birds is high up there for me as well but okay here's the thing about hitchcock though and what i was just saying about aster is like he made rope in 48 and I was looking at his like filmography before that, and this was like his like thirtieth movie. Thirtieth movie, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fucking crazy. And like he is showing off technically and in an even more self-assured way. Like Bo is afraid. I, these movies do, do not need to be compared, but you know, what am I gonna do? I saw them both in the same day in two different theaters. Bo is afraid is the sprawling work that like tries to touch on everything and like get every idea the director has in his head left in case he never gets to make a $30 million movie again. So it's like very frantic and desperate, you know? And then Rope has the self-assurance of a director who has been working in the studio system for decades at this point and like is showing off technically, but is also filming basically like, like a seven character play in like one apartment. And it's so self-assured that like, the main gimmick that most people know about the movie is the like simulation of the single shot and that, you know, reels were a lot shorter back then. You know, now we have, we work in digital. You really can do a one shot movie, but then you had to like hide your cuts. And I think he's like so confident that he's not even really trying to hide anything. Like most of the quote unquote hidden cuts are him zooming in the back of this yeah. one character suit jacket. Mm-hmm. And like by the third time he does that, it's like, okay, well, he knows that we know that he's doing that, but it's like, why bother trying to come up with a, like a more clever way to do it? That's not really the point right. of the play. So I don't know. I just think it's like unfair for everyone to be Hitchcock. Great 
three movies into their career instead of 30 movies in, <laughs> I guess is my main thought. But yeah, this is like a very fun, bitchy ice queen play about uh, <laughs> these like academic fascists who um, are also not so secretly queer and uh, think that they're superior to all the straight dullards that they have to deal with in their daily life. And uh, two of them take that superiority, I think somewhat earned, uh, a little too far and murder one of these straight dullards in their lives uh, for fun and then throw a fun dinner party on top of his body. Uh, and there's a lot of tension because we watch the murder happen early on and then we know they're going to get caught eventually. And uh, much like in, you know, Poker Face, which just aired, it's not a whodunit, it's a how catch him. And we uh, watch one of the other smart Ice Queen academics in the room figure it out. It's pretty great. I don't know, when I first met her, I just thought she was this woman, this girl in this business who was sleazy, who needed to make a living, who was fucking on camera. You know, I thought she was just a fucking another dumb porno slut. And I was wrong. It didn't take me long. I mean, I didn't fall in love with her because she was beautiful. I fell in love with her because she had this power. I went to San Francisco last fall, and I'm sure I've talked about that on this show a few times. No, never. I'm, I'm sorry. That's that sounded meaner than I meant it to. I mean, I thought I thought it would be friendly and playful, and it came across very mean. I'm sorry. We can cut that. This show will be over when I go to uh, Barcelona, and I keep saying Barcelona a bunch on the microphone. Oh no. We can Do we it. can take it back, and I will not make a joke again. I'm sorry. It, it was no, meant to be very fun and oh, light. No, it, it was it was good. When I was in San Francisco my favorite place in the world. I went up and down the bus line, just doing different things I could. Um, and I was looking for a lot of bookstores and used media stores. And I went to Amoeba Records as most tourists would do. And I hit up their queer Blu-ray and DVD section. And I bought a bunch of stuff that I assumed would never be on streaming because it was too filthy. Uh, I bought three or four movies that are like borderline pornography, and I was like, the only way I'll ever see these movies that have been on my watch list for a long time is if I buy a physical copy because no streaming platform would ever touch this stuff. And I was immediately proven wrong with Kamikaze Hearts from 1986, which within a couple months of that trip popped up on both the Criterion channel and on Canopy in this same new restoration from Kino Lorber that I bought in San Francisco. And... Instead of just writing about this like borderline, is it cinema, is it porn kind of stuff that I usually do by myself, every now and then I'll rope in the rest of the Swamplex crew to see if they're interested in that border as well. And this seemed like an appropriate movie. It's not quite as pornographic as, say, Equation to an Unknown which we watched on the show one time, uh, which yeah. I bought well, for similar reasons. And which we should say is pornography. <laughs> like, the equation to an unknown is not. Yeah, there's not a lot of debate there. That's porn. Yeah, hardcore French gay porno. Kamikaze Hearts is not that. It is a metadrama that is halfway documentary and halfway reenactments of things that have happened uh, in the porno industry in the 1980s. Um, it is mostly centered on... Sharon Mitchell, who is a very famous porn star, and her less famous girlfriend porn star, Tigger, who is sort of the main driving force of the picture, alongside the director, uh, Juliette Bashore. And Juliette Bashore wanted to make 
a film set in the 80s porno industry because she works on a couple of those sets. And she was like, this is actually like academically fascinating as like a feminist to watch this like sex commodity be treated like it was any other job. And I just want to like show this world on the screen. Um, and she started like trading ideas with Tigger and Tigger was like, well, I have this amazing girlfriend, Sharon Mitchell, who loves being on camera and we should make a movie about how fabulous she is and how fabulous our love life is. And you know how cool we are for being like unashamed feminist, lesbian porn stars. And as you can tell by watching Kamikaze Hearts, the, the excitement and the sort of like wide-eyed wonder that they may have gone in with, on that project with uh, turned very sour as they were making the film, mostly because we're watching the deterioration and the breakup of this relationship, where early in the film, it seems to have this thesis statement that like Sharon Mitchell is the coolest person to ever live, and that love and porn are like the punkest things in the world. And that like Sharon Mitchell and Tigger's relationship is like the coolest thing that's ever happened in that industry or maybe even anywhere. And there's just a lot of shots of Sharon Mitchell just sort of like eating up the camera time and everyone fawning over her. Uh, she's just like naked wearing just a leather jacket and smoking and like just has big macho like Sandra Bernhardt energy, like 1980s New York. I'm the most fabulous thing that's ever walked this planet Earth. And it's very intoxicating. And then as the movie goes along, we don't actually watch them go to real porn shoots. Instead, they staged this fake porno version of the opera Carmen that was shot as if it were a real porn, but was just for the sake of this quote-unquote documentary. And the more they try to like scrounge up behind-the-scenes drama, the more fake it kind of feels, and you feel them getting frustrated with the project and with each other. And then towards the end the real shit that they're actually upset about starts bubbling up. We're like Tigger is directing these sex scenes that her girlfriend is doing. And you can see this like intensity in her eyes as she watches this her girlfriend palpable, perform palpable yeah. jealousy, painful. Yeah. And what she's seeing and what she's expressing is that like, I'm watching you perform these sex acts and it's the same kind of performative sex we have when we're alone. Like you're never not on. And this thing that I think is fabulous about you, this like punk Sandra Bernhardt energy is like actually fake as fuck. And I can't break through to the real you, even though I love you very much and would basically destroy myself for you. And by the last scene or the last sequence, we see that destruction. And I think all the facade is dropped of like, what is documentary? What's kayfabe? We, we can't really tell. By the end, they're basically shooting speedballs on camera and we're seeing like the addiction that is kind of hidden from the camera for the rest of the movie. And, you know, in very clear terms, Sharon Mitchell's basically like, I got Tigger addicted to shooting cocaine with me because I'm bored and lonely. And this is the only way I know to like have a good time anymore. And it's really ugly and sad. And like all the romance and like excitement from the first half that is like so alluring, just sort of like becomes really sour and corrosive by the end. Um, and it's it's a really grand romance where what is real and what is a put on is very hard to determine throughout. And I hope I uh, did a good job of describing that unease and breaking up that facade a little bit because people have really talked about the production side of it enough now that we can tell what was staged. And I think you can feel it a little bit in what feels authentic. You know, part of my watching it, um, especially 
this is like kind of a weird thing to compare it to, but especially having had us watch like Salesman, I'm like, I think this could count as like Cinema Verity. Feels very much like in that vein of all you're filming this false narrative, we're still building like a very, very like real picture of how this world works. So just like everything about it, there's just this desperate dirty energy even as they're talking about his career just so like deadpan and professionally like the line that really stood out to me was like covering up pimples on my ass such a great way to put it you know if you've ever talked to any like sex worker they're always gonna talk about their work that way but there is sort of this like undercurrent of like economics that drive people to these things but also these are always going to be people who are living on the edge and they're living with these things so yeah i enjoyed that a lot i was after watching it reading like the wikipedia page where it talks about you know its reception and its time and one of the reviews that was quoted talks about how the film is at times like tedious in certain scenes and like borderline incoherent just in the way it's being made, but this ultimately very memorable. And I think I really agree with that point. Um, Cause this was a movie that for me at many points felt very difficult to pay attention to. Uh, and that maybe that's on me. Maybe I just wasn't in the right mindset for it. But when you're talking about this like big bravado uh, that Mitch has, there was something about it that rang so false to me immediately. Like it was so uh, familiar to me in a way where it's like, I have known this woman many times in like, you know, various workplaces that I've been in where, which are very, you know, we talk about this sometimes in the discourse about how like that is in many ways, very similar to sex work in the sense that like you're literally peddling your own body and, you know, whether you choose to do that through sex work or you do it through like a form of like customer service work or like service industry, that they're not as dissimilar as we sometimes like to pretend that they are. So this like world of people who are putting on this like pretense of coolness while also struggling through like, you know, like the one sound guy says at one point, like he takes no particular pride in the work, but people have to work and it's hard times out there yeah. for, for them economically, because that's true always under capitalism. Like that's never not true. There's never like if this movie is filmed in 1986 or 1996 or 2006 or 2016, it's always true. It's always hard when we're out here struggling with like underpayment. So this sort of like, Wizard of Oz sort of facade that she created for herself felt so false to me already from the get-go that I wasn't even really waiting for it to fall so much as I was like, how does how is anybody buying this until, you know, it turns out everyone's on heroin and you're like, okay, that's that's why everybody everybody is nobody's seeing through this when they should be. I don't think it's supposed to be that she's being genuine. I think it's like that she is got a grab like a gravitational pull to her. Like whether or not you think that someone is performing when they're like talking like that about themselves and how much they love fucking on camera and like they love all these eyes on them all the time. That's not being true. 
but it's still like attractive, I think, and like entertaining. And it's like the kind of person that's like the life of the party. I love her. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, like, having uh, you know, sort of dated one of these kinds of girls, I'm like, oh my god, yeah. There's just like something about these kinds of people who are always on and everybody loves them and like can command like the attention of a room. Like you feel more powerful just knowing them and like around them because it's someone who can stand out in a room and you know not quote unquote be themselves but like has the attention and has that magnetic personality and their biggest fight towards the end is when tigger is like you have all this power and you have all this command of all these people's attention and people want to be around you and listen to you and you do nothing with it you're just like a drug addict who like is doing nothing with their lives and like later in her career, I don't know how much of an influence this like time had on her life and like what she did, but she became like a big AIDS advocate within the porno industry and like for a while got a lot of people like regularly tested before that was like an industry wide standard. Um, she set up her own little like foundation for that. So like she did put that energy to good use and that power to good use later. But here it's like the ultimate punk glamour demon that like uh you yeah. know uh she has all this power and all this like allure but she's doing nothing creative with it it's like it's really just like bringing other people down with her and it's sad it's like a much sadder movie than i wanted it to be based on like how in love with i was with her in the first like 10 minutes but if you find that punk bravado annoying and disgusting <laughs> it's, yeah. not, not disgusting but but yeah kind of so you know let's get needlessly personal because i always do you know, there was a time when I was living on State Street in Baton Rouge. I was 19 and like I was friends with a bunch of people who I think we all just really considered ourselves to be very like thoughtful, forward libertines. When looking back on it, there was one person who was sort of leading the charge and frequently like really encouraging people to engage in behaviors that they probably wouldn't have otherwise in a way that looking back is more troubling and problematic than it is sort of like, oh, I was so free. Like, I don't look back on those times and think that I personally was taken advantage of. But the person who was leading the charge of this like libertinism, one who was always like, oh, let's have a naked party. Oh, you know, let's everybody strip and have fun. Oh, let's have a competition. This was not something I was present for, but let's you and this other guy in the back seat here, let's masturbate and see which one of us finishes first as like a race when we have other people in the car with us. Like just some real like looking back on it, some stuff that really deserves its own eventual uh Lion King esque documentary where I'll like really have to tell the truth about this person from the ground up. Huh? Tiger King? What did I say? Lion Lion King? King. (laughs) I meant Tiger King. Yeah. So, you know, to me, there's this, I I spent so long, like, around this group of people in what we called Eversburg Shantytown, with a bunch of other people who, like, we were kind of living on the edge, we were making very little money, pooling our resources, like, but I knew so many people who were, like, and I'll say it, they were on heroin at the time who were really trying to put on this air of like, 
sort of fake it till you make it, but not with that particular intent. Just like they actually did think that they were hot shit and it was all just kind of like a facade. So for me, I was never fooled by her. I kind of, it was just sort of like waiting for whatever was going to happen to her to happen. Now that doesn't mean that this was bad. I, what I really liked the most was like some of the stuff that I guess probably is fiction, but everything having to do with their producer is the only time that there's like a lot of like subtlety as far as like a narrative. That's my least favorite stuff in the movie (laughs) by far. Well, because, and again, I know that this is supposed to be a documentary. All right. And so documentaries, as far as pieces of art or a text go, they are not supposed to be like fiction even though a lot of times they do end up being sort of like manipulated and and forced to be that way. And this is like a very simplistic part of my brain. Whenever that happened, I was like, okay, I know straightforwardly who the villain is right now. I knew who I'm not supposed to be cheering for. And I think that even as I was realizing that, I was like, that's a very boring way to like think about this movie. But that is just sort of the way that it is for me. That stuff just like rang so false to me based on how I've heard people in the industry talk about porn versus like mainstream filmmaking. Um, I'm thinking particularly of the Rialto report is a great podcast and like uh, archival blog that like documents this era of like porno chic before video and the internet kind of killed that industry. But like a lot of the actors talk about how when they try to go into mainstream or even before they went into porn and they started a mainstream, a lot of the producers were this type of guy. It was like, take nude pictures with me, have my casting couch audition, quote unquote process. And I'll trade that for exposure and like get you deals where like in the actual porn industry, it was a lot more transactional and not, and I'm not saying this like applies to everybody in all situations. Obviously I'm sure people were very much taken advantage of in the porn industry as well. But like, it was a lot more like honest and like you get paid to have sex on camera at this hour and there's no like fake audition process where you have to sleep with people to get that part. Like it's just like kind of out in the open and they found that very refreshing versus like Hollywood producers. And like this guy to me is playing like a Harvey Weinstein type who like doesn't really fit in this like type of world that they're trying to like quote unquote truthfully portray. I, you know, I can't know. Like, you know, this is sort of like the people who were in the industry are making this film And so, you know, they're doing it as a pseudo documentary. So either they have, as veterans of that industry, decided to portray it this way, either to uh, play on what like a mainstream audience would assume is the reality, or maybe it happened enough. There was something about it wasn't the him shooting the girl um, and by shooting, I mean, photo shooting again for our listeners. Um. It wasn't him uh, taking the photographs of the woman who's like Jane Blowdryer or whatever her name is, which, by the way, great, amazing name. No yeah, she was in perfect. a punk band called the Blowdryers that she sang lead vocals for, which is how she got that name. Amazing. I loved it. But it's the scene where they're shooting one of the scenes in the fake porn uh, version of Carmen, where one of the actresses just straight up refuses to do anything while he's on set. That had a real ring of like truth to me where like I can see that being something that was like a problem 
for women who are working, who would work on these kind of sets where it's like, yeah, I'll do it. But when this one particular creep is around, I won't. And then that person really throwing their weight around. There is something about that that felt very real to me. And I don't know. Again, none of us were there. None of us can know. But Yeah. And I, I'm sure that did happen. But like, I think a, a little bit of what's happening there is like, that's the reputation that that guy who actually was a porn producer. I, I want to say his name is like Jerry Abrams or something like that. But he's playing a character. And like, he wants you to think of him as this like sleazebag. Because like that helps his reputation at the time i guess i you know i get that i get that as a possible explanation for that but also like what i love about this movie is how that is not tenable like that's the movie they wanted to make was this like to repeat what ali said like salesman type like recreating real scenes in this like kind of you know hermetic environment on this like fake carmen set and like they wanted to tell the truth or tell a version of the truth about pornography by restaging it. And like the emotions in that scene where the actress storms off and she's like, Oh, I can't stand this guy on the roof. Like the limitations of her talents as an actor, I think show through in those scenes in a way that like makes it feel sort of fake and not believable. And Mm. then what I love is that as the movie goes along, they sort of lose the facade and like the movie they want to make kind of goes to war and loses with the movie they're actually making, which is about this like breakup and addiction. And like by the end, the like more raw emotions where like Sharon and Tigger are having these like real fights and basically doing like couples therapy on camera. Uh, like that stuff hit way harder for me. But in the middle, between those two points, it basically is a hangout film where not much is happening. It's kind of a mess. Uh, but I find the mess interesting, I guess. Because these characters in this like backdrop are just inherently interesting to me. So I will say, like people I know who do similar work, um, specifically more like photo shoot modeling, like, all of them have told me stories of some sleazebag. So I don't doubt that that's happened. Um... <laughs> But yeah, right. it did feel very, very like staged in a way that the rest of it felt a lot more real. Mm. I do think that there is also like the version of what was happening behind the scenes that I've been spoon fed by the people who were there is like also the rosiest version because they've been like so used to defending porn <laughs> as like a real art form for so long that they have to present like the cleanest, squeakiest version of it and like maybe wouldn't want something this ugly that would have happened to these actors like out there so i don't know it's kind of infinitely fascinating both in the same way that i think about pro wrestling and just documentaries in general is like what is real and what is fake is always like an interesting back and forth in those art forms and in this one in particular i feel like that's kind of out in the open like I think there's an early scene where Sharon Mitchell is doing this like one woman stage show where she basically says, we're making a documentary about my life and my love and it's called truth or fiction. And someone in the audience asks like, is it more truth or fiction? She says, I don't know. Cause I don't know if I'm more truth or fiction. Yeah. yeah. She's like completely lost the thread on what her own personality is. And uh, that, that holds through throughout the rest of the movie. It's like, I, I, I don't know because she doesn't know. And she's like kind of lost track of where the performance stops and ends on stage, on camera, and in, in the bed. It, it's all a mess. 
And I think that that is something that's true for all of us, too, a little bit sometimes, is that we can really sort of lose the thread of, like, how much of what we're presenting to our friends, to our peers, in a work environment, even in, like, a friendship environment, like, how much we are hiding and how much we're sort of playing the role that that, like, group has set for us as well. So that did, you know, it it rang true. I just... Uh, again, I was most fascinated by and wanted to see more of like a real, like more standard conflict. But I know that that's not what this movie is. And I think that if I had gone in with a different expectation and I wouldn't have been expecting to see it resolved in a different way. So if our listeners are going to watch it, you know, go in with this knowledge and you'll probably enjoy it more than I did where I was kind of waiting for certain things to pay off because even when you're making a real documentary and this is one of the things that can be dangerous about a documentary is that you're still making decisions about what to include and what to exclude and what to highlight and what to make seem you know reasonable even even in a what we consider documentary which you know, some people would think oh that means it's objectively true there's still a lot of like fabulism going on we know that, but I think that in general, a lot of people, they'll just watch a, you know, a documentary on Netflix and they'll be like, oh, wow, that changed my whole opinion on something. You know, like there is still an element of editorial tone and editor- like just editorial choices that I, it made it seem like certain things were going to recur in this movie because they seemed narratively seated that did not. And I guess that, you know, was a little bit... Not what I was expecting, but again, not something that's actually a detriment to this movie so much as it was like a detriment to my personal viewing experience. Something I do like about that question of performance versus reality is like, especially the way that Mitch plays with gender and mm-hmm. even Tigger start, starts to take on Mitch's more like butch macho en- energy. And like we see in an early scene, in a real like one of the more like cinematically textured parts i think is like when they're playing back their first sex scene in this movie called Sulka's Wedding in a movie where Tigger is new to the scene and like basically is this like wide-eyed surfer girl from the west coast and is seduced by Sharon Mitchell who's already in her like full Sharon Mitchell drag yeah kind of seduces her in this like changing room and then by the time we meet Tigger in like the contemporary moment she has the full like stone butch mullet. I was gonna say she's got the, the full 80s. on eighties mullet. She's got the button downs. Yeah, she is like really indoctrinated. Yeah. <laughs> um, I do love that playback scene though, and she, they do this a few times where they're like playing video of sixteen millimeter footage that is then re-recorded into this film's like I believe probably eight or sixteen millimeter footage again. So it's like yeah. uh, video of film on film and Tigger's kind of rewinding, pausing and sort of erotically narrating her love for Mitch over this like heavily layered video footage. I, f- I find that kind of hypnotic and just really interesting. But also I, I, I do think that like they're playing with like gender representation, especially in the scene where like Mitch has a mustache on and is like the life of the party oh, uh, during that. one of the Carmen shoots. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know there's a lot there's a lot of stuff going on there that like even if it's not narratively propulsive there's still a lot of like play with how they're presenting themselves and like changing each other in that play. 
And we see uh, Mitch starting the cycle over again with another young uh, ingenue who she's taking under her wing. It was just like Tar. <laughs> this is my Tar. <laughs> this is your Tar. <laughs> tar is my kamikaze heart. And kind of a uh, real world knife and heart a little bit. Yeah, I can see that. And I wanted to like it more because of that. Uh, Smithereens was another movie of the month we did that is very much of this texture. I couldn't yeah, stop thinking about Smithereens while watching that. This that and um, what's the one Radio on Fire? A uh, Born in Flames. Born in Flames. <laughs> Feminist yes. classic. How dare you? Uh, oh, and those are like quintessential New York City punk movies. And this yeah. sort of transports that energy to San Francisco, and it doesn't quite fit, which is it kind of part of the tension. Literally by you know, Mitch. Yeah. She doesn't quite fit in like the happy go lucky, like sunshine, California culture. And it kind of eats the movie alive. I agree. And part of that, again, one of the things I really liked was when that awful porn producer was like, you gave her the money already. You gave her the money up front. You're a fool. Cause now we've got our friends from back in New York coming and you know what, you know who they are. And one of the guys is like, no, I don't know who they are. And it's like, clearly he's talking about mafiosos. You oh fool. yeah, for sure. <laughs> and, and then again, I was like, Ooh, is that where we're about to go? Cause you know, I've been watching the Sopranos for the first time. So it's in my brain. And I was a little <laughs> disappointed that none of our friends from back in New York actually showed up on screen. Like, wow, this is going to get really interesting. Not that it didn't in a different way. I'm just saying. If I was going to join that complaint a little bit, I would say I was expecting more of the fake Carmen and like the yeah. film stock they were using for the Carmen scenes were like so lush and beautiful and like high end mm-hmm. yes. that they probably couldn't afford to do any more than what they did. But uh, it was a really nice contrast between that like no wave gorilla style filmmaking versus that kind of high art version of porno chic that was such a short lived but like vibrant filmmaking scene. Well, I think it's interesting because, you know, in some ways it is part of the driving tension of the movie is we have these people doing this work that by all accounts like they don't seem to mind but also having the like conflict that at heart they're still like artsy people like they're still artists they know what they're talking about like yeah in mitch and um the girls who's taking under a wing are sitting around looking at like the slides of themselves and talking about how they look like Botticelli girls and like how this is how real girls look like. And they're talking about like all these like Renaissance things. And I'm just like, ultimately more so than the relationship conflict. Like that is the, the tension that I saw is like looking at this world as a business and as an art form and how these people perform. And in some ways that was more interesting to me. And I think you can see that too, though, in the relationship and that like Mm -hmm. Sharon Mitchell in a way, at least like personality wise was like built for this business. And like, she has a way of like turning on a character and disappearing into it. And that's, what's performing on screen. And like, she can do porn. Like it's nothing. And it has nothing to do with her real romantic life, which is pretty much strictly lesbian off camera. And Tigger obviously does not have that buffer and her watching Sharon, even in the fake porno that they're staging for this movie is tough for her, mostly because she can't unsee the ways that that performance continues on in the bedroom when they're not filming. So like even now, Sharon Mitchell is around and willing to talk about her porn work 
in her history in the industry. And from what I can tell, just sort of like digging around, Tigger is just like nowhere to be seen. And a lot of the people in this movie have not survived until the 2020s. I am actually glad to hear that Sharon survived just because watching this, I was like, oh no, is one of them going to die? I feel like one of them's going to die. Just like, can't help but think about people that you've seen act like this in real life and not all of them make it through. Most of the people in this movie are dead. Sharon Mitchell, amazingly, is not one of them. And she's been through some really tough shit. Yeah, I read about that. It's, yeah, wow. Her life was not easy before or after this movie. And she seems to have found a peaceful calm um, in more recent years, which is great. And it's really heartening to watch her give it. I'm tearing up a little bit. uh, (laughs) See her give interviews as a survivor of a lot of things that no one should have to go through. And I think it's great that this movie is partially a love letter to how fabulous she was at a certain time, even if it is also honest about the limitations of her fabulousness and the ways that she could be destructive uh, to the people who fell in love with her at that time. So I don't know. It is weird to know that most of the people on screen are not around anymore. And like for some of them, like particularly that like punk singer who is like (laughs) uh, shamelessly using the documentary as a, occasion to plug his hit single yeah. uh yeah you know that guy's not around and i don't know how much footage there is of him talking at parties you know like yeah. for his loved ones this might be one of the like more solid documents of him in his prime no one says and this was something that i found very puzzling and fascinating no one ever says aids no one ever says hiv that discussion is completely absent Considering that we are talking about the pornography industry in 1986 and And there's specific and the needle drugs and specifically a mention of Reagan. That mention of Reagan is uh, wild. Yeah, uh, that's like the snottiest punk bullshit in the whole movie is uh, Mitch is like my idol is Ronald Reagan because that's got to be the dream job for an actor to be president of the United States. What a hits of the arm. That's got to be like a junkie's you know, score for an actor to become president. And she's being very sarcastic and like show offy uh, because obviously Reagan is the enemy to any uh, person in that industry or in her lifestyle in general. You know, she's a queer drug addict porn star in the eighties. Like she's yeah. the exact opposite of Ronald Reagan. <laughs> like watching in real time as like queer people are like dying on mass because of like public neglect from his administration. And to her credit, she did, again, use her power and her, like, allure and fame to set up, like, AIDS help and AIDS screenings within her industry to take care of performers and make sure that they were not exposed as best as she could. I think that eventually fell apart uh, for legal reasons, but she she did her best. Yeah, it was like they had a data breach or something, like a privacy breach that ended up causing the company to, like, completely fall apart. And I think that... Work has been taken up by other entities, so maybe she didn't get the glory in the long run for like holding on to that, but like she did a lot of good work when she could with what power yeah. she had. I don't think that there anyone I don't think there's any argument for that for sure. Yeah. I love Sharon Mitchell. I'm I'm glad she's in a better place now because uh the last 20 minutes of this movie are very fucking rough. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So, you know, that was the other tension in the movie. Once again, it's just like I was sitting there being like, oh, God, 
you gonna die are we gonna like because especially the part where nobody knows where she was i was like holy shit like no yeah you were expecting it to go real rent yeah really renty for a minute i mean like no if someone has like an opioid addiction like and you can't find them like that is a big concern you know it's one of those things where you're just like oh shit you okay but like the fact that nobody's panicking except for like her girlfriend who is like just being berated while she's also like i don't know where the fuck she is that scene was rough i know that was one of the more like stage scenes but that was like one of the stage scenes that is like i feel like this happened are we talking about the scene where she's like will you stop fucking telling people that i'm on drugs is that no no i'm talking about about the one where we're talking about like oh she gave you gave her the money like that scene and then like how everybody's kind of like coming to her girlfriend who is on drugs who has like three hundred dollars in cash is missing yeah it's troubling well but the scene that comes after that once she's found is the one that i i couldn't tell if it was fake or not where she's like i i'm translucent people just you know i talk to people about my life maybe that's why you were in jail and she's like well you know i'm not going around and blabbing it with my mouth like they might be able to see the tree the track marks on my arm but i'm not verbally telling them that i'm a junkie like you are that felt really like intense and sleazy and like no that's when it starts getting very raw and it feels like them like having real arguments even if they're like rehashing arguments they've already had like there's some real hurt there and it, it starts to get very ugly and i think messy like i don't know in that middle section where the truth is anymore even the part where Tigger almost gets into like a fist fight at that show. Oh the yeah. Show that on stage. That felt pretty legit to me. And I, I don't know. I, I couldn't really place where the fiction they were imposing on the story stopped and started anymore, which I think is, is interesting. I think that's what gives it texture and like not being able to like clearly define this as a documentary or like a meta drama or cinema verite or whatever. Like it, it it's not a very like, well-defined movie it's very messy and but passionate and you know punk <laughs> and I, that, that's what makes all gonna draw me in yeah because above all like that is the thing about this movie is very punk oh yeah i think sherry mitchell has like real punk credentials like i think she like sang on oh, I believe new york it. dolls records before punk had a name and you know she was at the cbgb shows with like talking heads and blondie and all those other bands and She's on the record as like an original OG punk. She has like the street cred and then, you know, punk's got to pay rent. So she uh, also did this work on the side. Well, next week on the show, we are talking about another OG punk, Dolly Parton, which was my topic. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I really wanted everyone to watch this uh, Dolly Parton musical. um, I saw this January called The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. It delighted me to no end, and I've been holding on to this topic till now. I want everyone to pick a Dolly Parton film to celebrate. A woman who's celebrated all the time, but you know, it's, it's our time to do it.